0: Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus for February the 22nd, Thursday. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Slightly after dawn now, but uh, there's still plenty of um, bird action going on outside, um, which is an opportunity for me to sit back and reflect on a couple of things that have happened in the last couple of days and a couple of conversations that I've had. Firstly, we heard from Nicola Willis, the finance minister, at a select committee yesterday on the issue of the government's approach to managing the budget and how it viewed the, um, the government's budget. And in particular... The idea that a government's budget is a lot like a household's budget. That when you are under pressure, the best thing to do is to cut spending and to reduce the amount of borrowing that you do. And the idea is that this is very intuitive and understandable for normal voters who are exactly in that situation. If you experience a shock, a financial shock, and you don't have enough money to pay your bills and you don't want to borrow more money because you think that's going to make you more vulnerable, then um, you cut your spending. Uh, However, a government is different because it has the power to tax. And like me, I can't just go out onto the street and demand that people give me money. Uh, I'm also uh, unable to print my own money, which uh, is something that a government can do and has done in the recent past. So that means governments have a unique ability to borrow money from financial markets. And uh, the reluctance that uh, various governments have had over the years is that if they choose to go out there and borrow too much, then financial markets might say, okay, we don't believe that you're going to be able to pay us back anymore, and we're going to charge you much, much higher interest rates. And that's part of the, the background um, belief of a lot of people in politics and in our uh, public service these days, that New Zealand is one bad decision away from being locked out of financial markets just like it was in 1984 and 1990. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second, uh, uh, about why I think things are different now. But um, certainly it's worth hearing the thoughts of the finance minister on, and on this comparison between a household's budget and a government's budget. And to do that, I wanted to play you an exchange between Nancy Liu, who's a new National List MP on the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee, and uh, uh, Nicola Willis, who appeared before.
1: We want to understand, from your perspective, <laughs> In layman term, mm. for a normal Kiwi family, how are we going to go through this? How are we going to get out, lowering debt, and actually feeling the better impact of our lives? Well, I think, you know, thinking about the normal Kiwi um, is the answer, really, because when New Zealanders are managing their own household budgets, Uh, When they find themselves in a position where their outgoings far exceed their incomings, when they find themselves in a position where their debt, whether it's their credit card debt, their mortgage debt, other debt, uh, is becoming so expensive to service that it's eating in. Uh, to their choices in their household budget, then uh, they go and they do value for money exercises. They look through the budget. They say, where are the things that aren't driving the most value? Where can we be um, making some reprioritizations? Where can we be changing things so we get onto a more sustainable footing into the future? That's exactly the exercise that the government as a whole has to do. Uh, And just as households for a time will uh, carry debt, so so should the government sometimes. But I think um, Carolee's offered some reflections. But j- just to give you um, members, and I'm responding in part to your question, Barbara, to just give you a sense of what has happened with debt. In 2017, debt by the traditional measure that we've used was 21.6% of GDP. It's now 43.5% of GDP forecast for the 24 year using that same measure. So that is a significant increase, and in dollar terms, that's an increase from $59 billion to $183 billion. So I think the question you have to ask yourself when you're taking on debt is are we genuinely ensuring that the dollars we are borrowing are creating investments that are going to enhance the productive capacity, the growth of our economy into the future? And that is where I think we've got a real challenge in New Zealand, uh, that a lot of the borrowing that has been happening hasn't resulted in intergenerational assets that will genuinely drive growth into the future and we're going to have to be far more rigorous about the nature of investments we'd make because on the climate change point i'd make this point um absolutely new zealand as a whole is going to need to invest in infrastructure for adaptation uh, but we also are going to need an insurance policy so that when weather events happen that have effects that we didn't uh, estimate or that are devastating that we have the room to borrow to respond and in a sense that headroom in our debt position is the country's best insurance policy for climate change which is we need to have enough space so that when the rainy or extremely cyclone day comes we can borrow from the world in order to respond effectively and protect the well-being of our people.
0: So there we have it, um, Nicola Willis, um, believing that the government's budget is just like a household's budget. This, of course, has been repeatedly disproved by all sorts of economists and is um, the sort of thing that Margaret Thatcher said uh, and which has been used by politicians, particularly in the wake of the global financial crisis. And since then, the IMF, the OECD, the World Bank have recommended that austerity in the face of financial shocks is exactly the wrong thing to do. However, um, this is all uh, um, very topical because right now we have a situation where New Zealand has an infrastructure deficit and... Politicians of all sides of politics are, are in agreement that it probably isn't a good idea to borrow lots of money just to pay for ongoing expenses, operational spending, you know, the sort of usual uh, uh, health education, um, paying for for teachers and, and hospitals and that sort of thing. Um, but sometimes it does make sense to borrow money to build long-term assets that are going to provide a service and revenues over the long run which you can use to service that debt. The question is how much debt is too much and what is the uh, um, best way to approach this. So uh, we clearly have an infrastructure deficit, the infrastructure commission says 100 billion and could easily get to 200 billion if we don't do much about it in the next 20 to 30 years, particularly because we're growing our population at one5 to 2% when we had planned for 0.5% population growth. And by the way, we're still planning for 0.5% population growth, even though we had 2.8% population growth last year. So the question is very live at the moment because councils are in the process of putting up their rates bills, arguing that they're not getting any help from the government to help pay for all this infrastructure. That's because... Uh, New Zealand is in an unusual position where local governments in New Zealand do not get a share of GST or income tax. That's not the case overseas. And unlike uh, uh, overseas, where those councils and state governments have access to GST and income taxes, our councils don't. However, our councils have to pay for most of the infrastructure that is used by a growing population. They have to pay for... Water in particular. Now, for those who listened to the podcast yesterday, water is crucial because unless you've got water pipes going in and out of a suburb or a street, you don't get houses built on that that street. And even if you've got a suburb with existing houses, uh, sometimes you need to upgrade the networks when you densify. So um, the issue of who pays for water is very important. You might remember yesterday I talked about some reports that came out of Standard & Poor's, the ratings agency, in which it downgraded the outlooks for 15 councils, saying that the government's decision to repeal free waters and leave a vacuum uh, on how councils would get the capital and the revenue they need to fund the infrastructure that's necessary uh, had had, um, worsened the financial outlooks for councils. So I decided to have a chat with, Anthony Walker, who is Standard & Poor's head of Sovereign Ratings and also its local government ratings. He's based in Melbourne, and I spoke to him yesterday for the When the Facts Change podcast, which is going out on Friday morning. Uh, Essentially, I asked him uh, why the uh, government wasn't just borrowing money on its own behalf to either give it to councils or use it to directly pay for the infrastructure that's necessary. Now obviously that's not something the government's doing and not something that the Labour previous Labour government wanted to do either. Labour's plan through Three Waters was to carve the water assets out of councils, put them into standalone vehicles and get them to borrow money under their own right with the independence to be able to charge for water and reassurances to investors that... um, politicians, either central or local, couldn't get their hands on either the assets or the ability to charge for water. Now, National obviously has repealed Three Waters and said if councils want to voluntarily create council-controlled organisations, they can, but that um, the government, the central government and local government, did not want to guarantee these council-controlled organisations. So I wanted to ask uh, Anthony, firstly, about this claim that the government's made, that finances are fragile and that uh, one of the things the government wanted to do was to avoid uh, uh, putting us in a position where we were cut off from financial markets. He told me in no uncertain terms that the uh, government's finances are not fragile, they are A rated, and if you're looking for reassurance about um, how, what the grown-ups in financial markets actually think of New Zealand's ability to borrow – Yesterday, the government uh, did something unusual, which is to issue a brand new bond. So this is a 30-year bond, 2054 is when it matures, and they did it through what's called a syndication. So instead of having a normal auction, they ask a bunch of bankers to go out there to fund managers and essentially directly talk to them and ask them for bids uh, for this brand new bond. Um, the maximum they were going to issue was four billion dollars. They probably were going to issue a bit less, and they were curious to see you know how much demand is there. This is the moment of truth when uh, fund managers have to put their money down and lend it to the government for a thirty year period so this is this This is when you work out whether the grown ups in the financial markets actually think that the government is fragile. What we saw was $19 billion worth of bids for $4 billion worth of bonds. That's four times, uh, five times covered, which is a very strong result. That says bond investors are very happy to lend money to the government at an interest rate of 5% for 30 years. And the pricing uh, for those people who uh, follow bond markets and understand what's going on, and I have to say I, I do after 30 years of covering them, um, the pricing was one basis point above the secondary market price, which is an incredibly tight price, so i.e. a very, a very good price for the government. That is not indicative of any government that's under stress. So um, we have a government that does not want to borrow, uh, even though it can, and even though there is strong demand for that for that debt, it is telling us that there isn't strong demand when there clearly is. And it is telling us that we are very vulnerable to being cut off from financial markets, just like we were in 1984 and 1991. That is clearly not true. And one of the reasons it isn't true, and and one of the things that a lot of politicians and bureaucrats and economists forget when they make that comparison, they say, oh, we never want to be in that position again. Well, that is, we can't be in that position again because back then... The government borrowed money uh, in foreign currencies at short terms from banks and uh, others overseas, and what ha- and they did it with a fixed currency, a fixed rate currency. So this is a uh, a currency that uh, is not supposed to change in value. Now, why why do I say that's important? It means that uh, when there is some sort of financial shock and essentially a run on your currency, it tends to push the value of the currency down if you need to devalue. And that's what happened in 1984 and uh, essentially again after the currency floated. Uh, And those were the very early days of the float. And when you have borrowed money for short-terms in foreign currencies – You are very vulnerable to being locked out of markets because if you only borrow something which rolls every three months or six months or even one year, the moment of truth arrives pretty quick. Also, if you're borrowing with variable interest rates, this is where the bank says, okay, next time we roll at 90 days, I'm going to put up the interest rate because I'm a little bit nervous about you. And also, so when that happens, suddenly the cost of borrowing that debt, expl- of servicing that debt, explodes. Particularly if you're having to buy foreign currency to service the debt, and you you say, well, well, surely we have to borrow money from overseas still. We do, but we do it in New Zealand dollars. So the interest rate risk and the exchange rate risk is borne by the lender, not by the issuer. So what that means is, if New Zealand has a shock, and we've had a couple since we started issuing uh, bonds in our own currency at fixed terms, often quite long terms, and I think here of the global financial crisis, the crash earthquake and Gabrielle uh, and COVID, uh, when that happens, um, there is enormous demand for our bonds and our currency doesn't fall out of bed. And that's because we have a floating currency and we issue bonds at long terms with fixed interest securities in our own currency, This idea that we are vulnerable is just not right. It's not true. And have a look at the quotes from Anthony Walker to give you an idea of why it's not true. The reason I I point all of this out is to say that there is a solution steering in the face of any government if it wants to solve our infrastructure deficit, and that is to use the Crown's balance sheet to borrow money. And unlike a uh, household... A crown can borrow money for long periods in its own currency and it can do it uh, with the power to tax. Secondly, uh, it actually, if you think about it from a household's point of view, and I can understand why that's intuitive for any voter or for any politician who wants to appeal to voters, is to say to that voter, okay, you don't like borrowing money as a household. That's That sounds right, but if you want to live in your own home, you have to borrow money from a bank. And for a lot of people who think about their futures, they are quite relaxed about borrowing upwards of five, six, seven times their income from a bank to buy a house. Now, they would tell you, well, this is an asset. It's not like uh, borrowing money to buy food or fuel, and that's true, but That's what infrastructure is. It's an asset that increases the uh, returns and the value and the long-term tax receipts of any government and the welfare of any population. So why is it different? Why is government borrowing to buy infrastructure bad? It's not. It's exactly the same as any household borrowing money to buy a house. Buying an asset that's going to provide a service for yourself and your family potentially for decades to come obviously not the same house you're probably going to move house but being able to own a house is a central part of how households think about their own finances why is it different for a government I'm Bernard Hickey if you want more detail on um, those uh, uh, comments from Nicola Willis from Anthony Walker what happened in the bond markets and what I think happens next have a read of the full email newsletter that goes out with this podcast. This is um, paid for and supported by paying subscribers to the Kaka, who I appreciate the support of. Uh, they may well ask me to open this up, so if you're hearing this and you're not a paying subscriber to the Kaka, um, thank them, but also we'd love it if you joined us as a paying subscriber. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. That was my chorus for Thursday, the 22nd of February. Kaki Town